So since uh, the first of the year, we've been looking at what makes a healthy church. And we're doing it in a couple different ways. We've been going through the book of Acts, and that's where we are this morning. We're in Acts chapter 5. First four chapters, we've seen nothing negative about the church. Um, Acts 1 through 4, it, it really is the ideal church. Uh, we see great leadership. We see a growing congregation, unity among the congregation. There's no parking problem in the early church. It's, it's amazing. But then we come to chapter 5. Acts 5 is the first time we see sin in the church. Acts 5 contains some of the most breathtaking yet shocking narrative in the entire New Testament. So let me pray for us this morning, and then we will walk through Acts chapter 5. Uh, Father, I, uh, I thank you for your perfect word, just how it's still changing lives today. Lord, I pray that it would do so this morning, that hearts would be changed, that men and women would see their sin and confess that to you. Lord, I pray that we would uh, be people of confession, that we would understand the seriousness of our sin, and that we would strive for purity and holiness. So give us eyes to see you this morning. Ears to hear from you. May I preach a true and faithful gospel. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So for context, I want to start at the end of chapter 4. I want us to see the contrast. At the end of 4, you see these healthy church members. And then in chapter 5, we begin to see unhealthy church members. So let's begin in verse 32 of chapter 4. God's word says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means sons of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this was the good. Now we read about the bad and the ugly in chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias... And his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, 
tell me what you um, tell me what you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. All right, now, obviously this is a very troubling story of the early church, but, but I, what I love here is how Luke doesn't hide this part of the church's history. You know, he, he could have just decided, oh, I'm not gonna, I don't want to put that part. You know, it's not going to be, um, you know, it's not going to paint a great picture, possibly. You know, people aren't going to come to this church. Luke writes about this. He, he doesn't try to write some happily ever after story. And I love that God doesn't hide those types of stories from us. They're, they're all throughout the Bible. Um, it's typically what we do. We like to hide stuff, right? If you go on a first date, your date says, so tell me a little bit about yourself. You're not sharing all your baggage, right, on the first date. Uh, if you do, then, then you know there's not going to be a second date, so you don't do that. Typically, you wait until they start to like you. You get them in a little bit. After they like you, then you start to sprinkle in a little bit of your baggage. Not too much, because they can't handle that either, but a little bit along the way here and there. That's what we do. But God just says, here I am. I have nothing to hide. And notice quickly how things can change in a church. We, we read in chapter 4, we saw the full number of those who believed were of one heart, one soul. They had everything in common. Great grace was upon them, and there was not a need among them. This might have been the pinnacle of the church's history. I mean, it was just perfect in some sense. You can think of it even maybe like pre-fall with Adam and Eve. Just there's that moment where everything was just perfect. And even, I wonder if Ananias and Sapphira is this kind of a new covenant Adam and Eve kind of picture. Things change so fast. We see in the very next moment after Acts 4, this troubling story of Ananias and Sapphira. I think passages like this raise so many questions for us. Questions like, could this happen to us today? Aren't there bigger issues to deal with than, you know, lying? I mean, they still gave money, so why does it matter if they didn't give it all? Or maybe doesn't God take this a little bit too far? So let's think through some of these questions. First, could this happen to us today? You know, what if we lied about what we gave to the church? Would God strike us down? We need to remember that we're reading a narrative. And when you're reading a narrative, we need to remember that narratives are not normative. What I mean is just because you read something in a narrative does not mean that this is the way it's always going to happen. Let's take an Old Testament passage. I mentioned Gideon a few weeks ago. Let's think about Gideon for a moment. In Judges 6, Gideon lays out a fleece at night. He lays it out in order to discern God's will, and God miraculously answers him. Now, this does not mean that we should lay out a fleece to see if we should take a job or not or you know, make a decision. The book of Judges is a narrative. It's describing what is happening. It is not prescribing what we should do. So this is the same thing as happening in Acts 5. Acts 5 is a narrative. Just because God does this here does not mean God is obligated to do it again. Well, then, aren't there bigger issues to deal with than lying? I mean, is lying really that big of a deal? Don't we all do it? Everyone lies, right? 
The Bible says that God is not able to lie. Jesus calls himself the truth. Listen to Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6, verse 16 says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Number one, haughty eyes. This is another way of saying pride. Number two, a lying tongue. Number three, hands that shed innocent blood. Number four, a heart that devises wicked plans. Number five, feet that make haste to run to evil. Six, a false witness who breathes out lies. Seven, and one who shows, uh, sows discord among brothers. Seven things listed. Did you catch that there were two things repeated? He mentioned lying twice. Number two, a lying tongue. Number six, a false witness who breathes out lies. God hates lying. He is truth. He is not able to lie. You think about Jesus. What does Jesus call the devil? He calls him a liar, the father of lies. So when we speak falsehood or these half-truths, we do not reflect the glory of the one who is the truth. Instead, we reflect the image of Satan. So from God's perspective, lying is terrible. Lying is awful. Lying rips away trust. It breeds disunity. So Ananias and Sapphira didn't just tell a little white lie. They lied to a holy and righteous God. Now notice how in verse 3, who the lie is directed towards. Notice that Peter does not accuse Ananias of lying to him. Peter says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 4, this is quite interesting. Peter says, you have not lied to man, but to God. This is important, like pneumatology here. Like, who is the Holy Spirit? The, this shows us that Peter looks at the Holy Spirit as being God. He says, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And in verse 4, he says, you have not lied to man, but to God. So Peter looks at, looks at the Holy Spirit as being God. This is huge for, you know, this new church, this you know, monotheistic, just we worship God alone. He's showing that there's one God, and he exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So now let's look at the third question. Ananias, he still gave money to the church. So why does it matter if they gave it all or not? Well, if you read it, it really has nothing to do with the amount that they gave or the amount they kept. Peter says that no one forced them to even sell their property, that Ananias had every right to decide what he wanted to do with his money. The problem with Ananias and Sapphira was they were being like the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they were hypocrites. They would say one thing, but then do another. They had the appearance of being holy, but Jesus says their hearts were wicked. Ananias and Sapphira wanted others to look at them as being kind and generous, but it was all this facade. They had a fake piety about them. You know, I know the church can be known for that. You come in on Sundays, you have this fake piety about you, and then you live a completely different way the rest of the week. It seemed like they cared more about what others thought of them than they cared about what God thought of them. So the problem wasn't that they kept back some of the money for themselves, but that they lied to God about what they gave. But doesn't it just seem like God took this a little too far? 
a little too overboard? Wasn't this judgment a bit extreme? I mean, couldn't just like smack on the wrist or a warning? Don't do that again. I think at first glance, most people have a difficult time reconciling the story. I mean, it bothers us. It really troubles us. I think most people think that one little lie, um, most people don't think that one little lie is, is worthy, deserving of God's wrath and punishment. But this kind of thinking actually shows how little we understand God's holiness and how little we understand our own um, sin. Every single sin, even what you might call a little lie, is an attack on God's very character. God takes the untruths we tell as personal offenses. And when you don't make much of the holiness of God, you will minimize sin. I think the problem starts when we ask man-centered questions like, why would a good and loving God ever do something like this? This question is putting a high view on man. The question we should be asking is, why would a holy, a righteous, just God ever allow any of us to take another breath of air? I should say his air. The fact that God did not destroy all of humanity when Adam and Eve first rebelled against him is a sign of his long suffering and his amazing grace and not a sign that sin is not a really big deal. The true marvel in this passage is not so much that God killed Ananias and Sapphira, but that God has not executed justice on all of us. You see that God loved us so much that instead he sent his son to come and die so that we might enjoy his father's favor in salvation. One of my favorite books is uh, it's called The Holiness of God. I don't know how many of you read The Holiness of God. I encourage you, like, that should be on your list. Like, take time to read Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Sproul says this. When we understand the character of God, when we grasp something of his holiness then we begin to understand the radical character of our sin and hopelessness. Helpless sinners can survive only by grace. Our strength is futile in itself. We are spiritually impotent without the assistance of a merciful God. We may dislike giving our attention to God's wrath and justice, but until we incline ourselves to these aspects of God's nature, we will never appreciate what has been wrought for us by grace. So there's a couple of truths I think we need to learn from this passage. First, God always knows what is done and said in secret. And some of you, it's kind of dark in here this morning. You think, God can't see me in this room. He can. He can still see you. We cannot hide anything from him. And foolish, it was foolish for Ananias and Sapphira to think uh, that they could hide the truth from the one who knows it all. Second, the church is a body which consists of many members. Sometimes we, we think our faith is personal and it's, it's private, it's, it's mine. But it's really, it's a corporate faith. When, when, you, when you become a follower of Christ, you become part of a, of a bigger body. And, and it's really important for you to understand that your sin does not just impact you. There, there's a picture here of church discipline. Church discipline is about the purity of the bride. The church is the bride of Christ. It's also about obedience. I guarantee you that this made the early church think twice before they, uh, before they answered Peter's next question. 
In fact, that's exactly what we see in this passage. Verse 11 says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. You know, that, that led them like, well, I'm, I'm going to make sure I tell the truth here. So th- this story should lead us to repent, to celebrate the grace that God has shown each and every single one of us. I mean, how, how many of you have ever lied before? Just show of hands. Okay, if you didn't raise your hand, go ahead and raise your hand because <laughs> you just lied. There have been many, many opportunities for God to just destroy us, to wipe us out. But he has shown incredible patience and grace to us. This should lead us to praise his holy name. This should cause us to sing loud or, or for goodness sake, at least smile when you're singing. Some of you look just so miserable and angry when you're singing. Why? I have no idea. Like, do you, Are you reading the words on the screen? I'm not saying you have to dance or raise your hands, but I just don't understand how the truth of what we're singing about doesn't stir your affections. So the first 11 verses show us the seriousness of sin. Word spread that two church members died because they lied to God, and great fear came upon them all. I wonder what this would do to the church attendance. You know, what would that do if it was like that happened here, word got out? Think we'd grow? Some of you may not come back next week. I don't know. I I know for a fact that the church in Jerusalem was not being considered a seeker-sensitive church after this moment. Let's keep reading. Let's see how this news impacted the church's ability to grow. Verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly... I think that's an interesting phrase, regularly a word, done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, take note of that, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Amazing. Amazing. I'm so thankful that the church is not built on marketing strategies or pragmatic schemes or a bunch of programs. The church is built on the power of God's word, the faithfulness of the saints, and ultimately the grace of God. God had not allowed lying and hypocrisy to grow within the church. He wiped it out fast, and the church continues to grow all throughout the city. We see in verse 13 that none of the rest dared join them. Now, was it because they were too afraid that God might strike them down as well, or, or maybe it was because they would lose their social standing with the political and religious leaders. Maybe both, I'm not sure. It also seemed like word had gotten out about the lame man being healed because people were now bringing their sick with hopes that Peter's shadow might just fall upon some of them. And this just shows incredible confidence in the power of God. People had faith that God's power and presence is literally resting upon the apostles. In verse 16, Luke writes, 
that the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, they were all healed. I mean, this is amazing what's happening. Like, in spite of what happened in the first 11 verses, God is still at work. The attack from inside the church by Ananias and Sapphira didn't slow down God's plans. And now we see an attack from outside the church in verse 17. Let's see if God's plans are slowed down by this attack. Let's look down at our Bibles, verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison door and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people in all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. This is amazing. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent uh, to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find in the prison. They did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. And when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what, what this would uh, come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. The irony in this section is quite amusing. Let's just recap for a moment. The apostles are arrested by the Sadducees for their teaching. Um, and you know, why were they arrested? It says for they were jealous. I mean, can you imagine, like, why am I being arrested? Because I'm jealous. Uh, and, and so they were arrested. Then they were released from prison by an angel. Don't miss the irony here. They were, released, they were arrested by the Sadducees, released from prison by an angel, whom the Sadducees, you remember how the Sadducees, they say angels don't exist. So this angel who doesn't exist now releases the apostles who the Sadducees had arrested. Then the political class, who like to be known for their wisdom and knowledge, you know, all these elites have no idea where the imprisoned apostles are. And they're like, where, where are they? And then you see the leaders, the leaders are so frightened by the people that they you know, they've, fear the people for being stoned if they injure the apostles in any way. I mean, there's no other way to explain what's happening in this section other than that the hand of a good and sovereign God is at work. And God is in control. This passage shows us that nothing can happen to God's people if he does not will it to be. God makes the most brilliant men in Israel look like complete idiots. God's plans cannot be stopped, and the advance of his kingdom cannot be foiled. I mean, think about how frustrating this must have been for those religious leaders. You lock them up, angel lets them out. I mean, how are you going to stop that? But if you let them go, then they will continue to preach the name of Jesus, and their following continues to grow. You, you just can't stop this. It seems like the deck might just be stacked against them. What do you think? 
Now let's think about the apostles' perspective here for a moment. So they're in prison for preaching the gospel. Angel comes along, which is, you know, it's already pretty cool. You're there in prison, angel, see an angel. Miraculously sets you free without, you know, the guards seeing you and you're out. And then, so my question is, what do you do next? You were just put in for preaching. What, what do you do next? Where do you go? I think our flesh says, let's get out of Jerusalem as quick as possible. Let's go back to Galilee where it was safe. But the angel told the apostles to go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So what do they do? They flee or do they go back to doing the very thing that got them arrested? We read in verse 21, and when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And they just went right back at it. They did not fear this, these religious leaders. In the next section, we learn why. Let's, let's keep reading. Verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. I mean, these apostles didn't fear because I think they had their priorities in order. In verse 29, Peter and the apostles, they answer, we must obey God rather than man. This, this could be one of the most important verses in the Bible for us, I think. I think we often fear man and obey man more than we fear and obey God. You might not use that type of language. But I'm guessing there's been several times in your life, maybe even this past week, where maybe a friend, maybe a coworker, maybe even pressure from social media has kind of poked at you long enough to where you obeyed them rather than you obeyed God. But these men stood firm. Notice they didn't negotiate or compromise with the high priest. And this is this is the high priest. You know, a year ago at this time, they would have loved to have had a conversation with the high priest. This would have been someone they had huge respect for. And they're having this conversation. They don't compromise at all for their own, like, personal safety, their personal comfort, even to save their own lives. I think these apostles are modeling something for us that's going to be very practical and applicable sooner than later. The Bible commands us to be subject to our governing authorities, Romans 13. This council had authority over the apostles. But Peter gives us a great way of understanding obedience of government. Christians should submit to the government. But we must also remember that, God, that the government is not God. If the government oversteps its authority and makes demands that go beyond the authority given to them by God, then we must ultimately obey God rather than man. 
And I believe this is going to be very applicable for the church in America. We're not going to be able to hide behind our religion much longer. We will be fined and imprisoned for believing things written in the Bible. So these apostles do not submit to these leaders. They begin, in fact, to condemn their leaders for rejecting Jesus. In verse 30, they write, they say, the, the, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This is bold to say this to the lead. I mean, these aren't just religious leaders. They, these are political leaders. Now let's see how these leaders, hearing the apostles' rebuke, how do they respond in verse 33? When they heard this, they were enraged, and they wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the, name, um, in, in the council named um, Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or if this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So he took his advice, sort of. <laughs> and when they had called in uh, the apostles, they beat them, that's why I say sort of, and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So how do you think the apostles responded? Verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council complaining about what just happened. Is that what it says? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Oh, how I wish this kind of boldness would fall upon the church in America. Persecution, fear, negative reports could not keep God's spirit from saving sinners and bringing them to Christ. This final section, we see once again, the apostles did not value their own personal safety above the calling of the Great Commission, and neither should we. They were beaten, and, they were, and, and then they rejoiced when they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor. I mean, if somebody makes fun of us, we pout. Here they are beaten, and they celebrate. We see this pictured in Revelation 12. It's all said and done. There's going to be this incredible celebration. Revelation 12, 
Verse 11 says, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you will dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows the time is short. They love not their lives even unto death. And all these men, they'll go on to die a martyr's death, except for John. But John probably wished he would have died at certain moments. He was um, beaten close to death, tortured. Um, church history writes that he had hot oil poured over his body. He was just left on an island of Patmos, just kind of imprisoned there. And I just love thinking that if this is of God, nothing can stop it. Just how much encouragement should that give us? Should that embolden us to go and just share the gospel with others? Like, if this is of God, nothing can stop it. Also shows us that if we try to do things on our own, then it's probably gonna probably gonna fail. Acts 5, we see these relentless witnesses faithfully preach about the blood of the Lamb. These men and women love Christ more than comfort, even more than their own life. May we not shrink or coward when persecution comes our way. May we be bold and trust the hand of a good and sovereign king. Let's pray as the band comes back. Father, as we just look at a uh, challenging passage where we see seriousness of sin, we see just grace and mercy all throughout, Lord, I pray that we would, uh, that we would not look at our sin as being this just casual casual thing, maybe something we probably, you know, it's maybe not a good idea to do. May, may, may we see our sin as, a, as an attack on a holy and righteous God. May we be quick to confess our sin. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that is just emboldened by your power, that we would take risks this week that we would trust that you are in complete control of all the results. That if suffering comes our way, that you knew it was coming and that you think it's for our good. So it would help us to rejoice in our sufferings. Help us not to fear what man can do to us that man can hurt our bodies, but may we fear you who can hurt both body and soul. So may we cling to you today. May you lead our church. May we be faithful with what you've given to us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.